Hi, this is Roger Christian, and you're listening to the FSF Podcast. Hello and welcome to the FSF Podcast. I'm Tim, I'm your host. Uh, today, we proudly welcome an industry icon, Academy Award winner Roger Christian, to our show. Now, you may best know Roger for his work on movies such as Alien, Monty Python's Life of Brian, one of my personal favorites. I'm not the Messiah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Battlefield Earth, and then there's, of course, Star Wars, A New Hope, Return of the Jedi, and A Phantom Menace, which, yeah, Star Wars, That's it's a thing. So anyway... I am very, very excited to welcome Roger Christian to the FSF Podcast. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thank you. Very great to be here, and Happy New Year to everyone. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, so, hey, Roger, you had a, a documentary made uh, called Galaxy Built on Hope. And by the way, thank you for sending us the screener on that. That was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, anytime I get to watch something about Star Wars and how it was made and, and kind of peel back some of the layers on how my favorite galaxy came to life uh, is always always a fun time for me. So um, yeah, I really did appreciate that. But what I was hoping you would do is take a moment or two to explain the the premise of the documentary uh, and, and how it came to be and, and why people should watch it. Yeah, sure. It, it, I go back a bit to um, David West Reynolds, who was the original head of literature at, at uh, Skywalker. And I met him at the picnic that was always held in July at the ranch when I was directing second unit on Phantom Menace. And he came running down to me and said, Roger, Roger, I need to ask you questions. I've gone through all the archives. There's no interview with you. You're not mentioned in any of the making of Star Wars documentaries, the official ones. And yet everything I look at comes back to you. So <laughs> he kind of put the pressure on me to write the book, Cinema Alchemist. And, and so I actually took a year off and wrote it. And the head of literature after him, John Rinsler, who's brilliant, who wrote the beautiful making of Star Wars books, he edited it for me into a book that is out now, that's still out on Amazon. And, um, David continued his pressure on me because nothing had been done. And he said, it's a legacy. And everything that started on Star Wars, everything on that first movie that has gone through all of them, it should be documented for mm -hmm. fans because everybody is interested. So I couldn't get any official backing. It was a bit like making the first movie. Oh, is that your dog? <laughs> it's Ben's. Yes, I'm sorry about that. Oh, yes, it's not mine. Um, mine's gone deaf, so she's gone quiet. Um, so I managed to get a, a, a producer here, financier, um, Ritu Sharda, and a financier in L.A., Stephen Nia. They put up a small budget for me to go and make it. And I was going to interview people all over the world and do all of the usual stuff. And what happened? COVID struck. So I was landlocked in Canada. They wouldn't allow us in or anybody. Um, it wouldn't allow me out or anybody in. So I found a virtual studio in Toronto that made children's programs. So I could link in by uh, satellite I had guests who were with me actually in the studio and I could interview them and talk directly and live to them. And so I thought, you know what, let's do it. So an editor and I actually spent a year alone, the two of us making this thing with interviews going on in between and filming ourselves, everything we did ourselves. It was like making the first film with no money. Um, but I managed, and everybody said, because I've, I've done events and, you know, lectured students and stuff, and everyone said they really wanted me to say it, tell the stories in my own voice. So that's what we decided to do. Um, I had a few props and um, lightsaber and hand Solo's gun, and I had a Comcast that somebody had made for me and lots of other things like that. So I thought we should make it. And then to go deeper into the mythology, because I go through all of the, you know, to me, George's 
um, made a new legend or a myth for the cinema age. That's why it's connected globally. And I wanted to go into all of that. Um, I know a great friend is Guillermo del Toro, and he wanted to be in it. And because of COVID, he was shooting here. He said, if you can be alone with me outside the studio, we can do it. I can't have assistance. We can't do anything. We're not allowed. So he and I met with one cameraman who did the sound. We had a, a boom mic. He held the boom for me when I spoke, and I held it for him when he spoke. We did it the same <laughs> kind of the same spirit. But you know, Guillermo is very erudite and had some very interesting um views on Star Wars, which um and also it made him become a director. He saw it once in the cinema, I didn't know what it was, and went round the block four times and kept seeing it and couldn't understand how anyone could make a film like this, and that made him want to be a director. The other one I really wanted, because I really liked Rogue One, and Gareth has become a friend, and I think, to me, Rogue One was the most kind of Star Wars-like prequel. It was fantastic. And so Gareth is throughout, he's kind of the idea behind each of the segments that we go into and what he is saying and talking about his influence and what, in a way, most fans think he's able to voice that. And then I also had Carl Newman, who made the Fanboys and, and the recent holiday special documentary. So I had some really interesting people who just wanted to be part of it to show their appreciation and their understanding of Star Wars. So all of this came together, and we did it ourselves, as I said. The, the, the sound house I, I work with here is the best in in Canada. They just put me in the main studio, and we did the sound. I, I did whatever I could to make it work. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic documentary, and I, I do love the inclusion of, of your guests. Uh, both uh, Del Toro and Gareth Edwards uh, had such great input on on their own personal, not only just their own personal experiences, but how it's that work has impacted their work. Uh, and having just recently you know, interviewed Kyle Newman ourselves, uh, it was kind of cool to see him on another uh, documentary talking about Star Wars, knowing how big of a Star Wars fan he is yes. um, uh, and everything else. So uh, in, in, for me, this was fantastic to see all the things that you guys created back in the 70s on like a nickel's budget uh, that are be still being used today in different forms of cinema uh, and things that were made back then because like, oh, yeah, we could make that work. I think that we that would look kind of cool. And <laughs> yeah. it's still being used in Star Wars today because they've become iconic images. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's just, it was, it's a really, really cool, really cool, uh, documentary. And personally, I strongly suggest anybody who's watching, if you haven't had a chance to see a galaxy built on hope, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, visit of over two hours and in, into the star Wars world. Yeah. They're trying to sell it now. I mean, you know, little things like, you know, there was the Moss Eisley cantina. Mm-hmm was should be the kind of desert look that Ralph Macquarie had originally painted and which John Barry had brought Tunisia to be used for um, Tatooine. And right there, right on that angle where they cross into, there was an olive tree. Now, this is poor farmers. We couldn't go and cut it down. So we built a crashed spaceship that's as big as a seven, Boeing 747 that John did, and I took down bits of Death Star panels and broke them down with, with an old um, blowtorch and made it look old and crashed. No one really notices, but it's there. If you think every single Star Wars movie since then has had crashed spaceships as a very much a part of the whole mm -hmm. look of Star Wars, right to the latest ones, I mean, she's living in one ray, so... Um, right, yeah. Uh, it's little things, yeah, that I was able to get to explain. <laughs> I enjoyed the explanation of, uh, you know, because I'm always curious why we had blue milk 
uh, and there was the blue milk explanation, and there the the creation of Luke's lightsaber and how that came to be, and um, you know, and I and I always knew that that you know that that was a photo accessory. Uh, and by the way, I was talking with my buddy um, Row over at the Scarif podcast, and he wanted me to tell you that every time he see watches like old nineteen fifties movies where they have the flash, you know. He, th- yes. he thinks of Star Wars, and so do I. I I'm, I'm personally, I'm always like, "Look, honey, a Jedi," you know. But right. uh... <laughs> well, I think you know when I, I was always very deeply immersed in myth, and uh, King Arthur got me through childhood basically. So I knew when I read that script that if anything would become the icon of Star Wars, it was a lightsaber. It was a brilliant kind of invention by George, um, and it took a lot of finding for me because I couldn't make anything. I didn't have the money to make anything in the workshops and I had to find found objects for everything, including all the weapons. And um, to me, it, you know, I, I took a lot of care because it's, it's the mystical weapon of a Jedi. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This was something special. And and the day that I found those Graflex handles, it was, I found my own Holy grail that day. Yeah, I like I like your description in the documentary. You talk about you you're taking off the lid, and you're like you're like it was like there it was, <laughs> you know, Excalibur, you know, and Lady yeah. in the Lake. And, yeah, and it was kind of it was just kind of cool. I was like, yeah, I can see that. So no, it was a big moment. You know that that would be music and slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it it is crazy the power that just swords have in myth not even just as they are as a weapon but i mean it really is just a king arthur tale because it's a magic sword it's just a handle that becomes a blade and the yeah i mean i remember specifically when i was a kid building my own lightsaber at home it might have been just a little aluminum tube and some glued on little like gemstones that i put on there right but that was the weapon of a Jedi Knight. And it's yeah, transcended it, since then as well. Yeah. Well, it, in fact, the sword is almost the center of most myths and legends. That It comes up so many times again and again. And in fact, the poster behind me, Black Angel, which is the short film that I made that George commissioned that went out with um, Empire Strikes Back, has a sword fight in it. And I'm now about to go to Morocco to do a feature film inspired by it. And at the center of it is a sword that is destiny, part of the destiny of my lead character. So I'm continuing the um, my love of this kind of type of ancient mythology, which I, which I really like. You know, and George is... George you know, his instructions to us where I'm making a documentary, I'm not making a feature film, and um, I'm making a spaghetti western in space. Well, spaghetti, every spaghetti western is based on a samurai Kurosawa movie, exactly the same plot and the look and everything. So he was my mentor, Kurosawa, and um, so it's very much behind what I'm doing again now with, with the new with a new movie. So kind of to expand on a lot of what you just said, uh, in the documentary, you talk about the importance of creating family entertainment and how George uh, was driven to make movie going more of a family experience again and moving away from the more violent entertainment that kids were exposed to and still exposed to, to an extent. You just mentioned King Arthur can you talk about the importance of myth and legend and how your work in Star Wars and everything you've done since then or before and since, uh, can you expand on that? To, into yeah, sure. Legends? Yeah, because um, there's a reason that these great legends from the Indian, Greece, um, from... You know, we we had King Arthur, which is Europe, but there are ones from Gilgamesh. There are legends. There's a reason why they've remained with globally with everybody, um, 
because they're essential kind of keys to who we are and to how we kind of grow up. And um, George studied mythology. George had the advantage that no other mythology writers or makers ever had. He had Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell mentored George. And Joseph Campbell, if you know any anybody wants to know about him, just look up that name. He's the world's greatest mythologist. He spent his life studying myth. And he mentored George into how to construct a story that contained the elements of a myth that connect to the subconscious. They're not what you're watching, they're what you're, you're absorbing from a movie. And George was able to do this with a modern audience in cinemas, and there are moments throughout the sagas that George created that adhere to those mythological moments. Um, you know, when you look at King Arthur, he was an orphan because... Martin, uh, Merlin took him when he was young and brought him up. If you look at um, uh, most of the legends, they actually are orphaned. Uh, certainly the ones that um, George was accessing. And so they show you how there comes a moment where you will meet your destiny. <laughs> And most people don't meet that moment because their instinct isn't open or they're surrounded by the voices from around them and everything. But if you connect, as Luke did, the moment aunt and uncle were, were killed, he'd already had met by what looks like chance, Obi-Wan Kenobi. They were living on the same planet. He was living in a cave not that far away from Luke. And it's explained later in the TV series, but there was a reason he was there and there's a reason how that all ties together. And then he goes to fulfill his destiny to become the hero. This is the hero's journey. And this is uh, Joseph Campbell's major book is called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And that explains that there is actually one story. There is one mythological story it's told in a thousand different ways. George, because of all of that, and he studied mythology, and, and he was able to put it into a story for children because most of these myths really appeal to the child and they help you growing up um, and they help you to find yourself, basically, if you are able to absorb it. There's an absolute reason why there's no other film in the history of cinema has a, connected to a global audience. You can go to China, you'll find a Star Wars doll in a back kind of peasant's house. There's a reason for it, because it connected to the world. Um, and George was able to do that with cinema, which is a fantastic way to... Uh, globally tell the story. Um, so that's why I'm so um, I'm so kind of it's not for my ego that I continue to continue on the path of helping with Star Wars and everything. It's because the world needs it, especially now, the way the world is. It's not it's not that good. And we need those stories and you know and I I it's like it's very touching. I met fans here not long ago at a, at a convention, and one came and asked if I'd signed this lightsaber they'd made, and they were crying when I signed it. And I realized how much this has meant to everybody, and we need it. As a, as a human species, we need this to help us survive. And I explain in the um, documentary that, you know, George is kind of, he said once he was Buddhist Methodist, but as you can tell that it's more and more Buddhist, the the mindfulness, the the all the things that are said by the night. So in Return of the Jedi, I think that's where George's voice comes through when Luke and Darth Vader hating each other to the point where they want to kill each other, have the mm -hmm. fight. 
you know, and it builds up. It's a huge fight. And as it's natural in the animal world, the young one gets the older one down. And at the moment he goes to kill him, he switches off the lightsaber and puts it down. And Darth Vader asks him to remove his breathing apparatus, which he knows will kill him anyway. Um, and they're looking at each other in the eyes. And that, that this is a moment where you think all there is left is love between them. It's the only word I could use. And that's George's message to the world that forgiveness and compassion is what matters to humankind. And what. Um, so all of this I, I wanted to bring out in the documentary as well so that people could look a little bit deeper and see, oh, there's connections here all along, if that helps yeah. to explain it. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely I, does. I, I'm lucky enough that my dad kind of forced me to be a big reader when I was a kid, and I read Joseph Campbell's book. Oh, you did? How old absolutely were you? Absolutely beautiful. I mean, I read it when I was a toddler, but I kept rereading it to understand more. And one of the best things about the hero's journey is, yes, it's all just – there's only one story thousand ways of saying it but only one but the thing that made me think about it more was that there's always a refusal i mean obi-wan says like hey you're gonna come with me train in the ways of the force and become a jedi and luke says no yeah and he goes <laughs> and leaves but that's the funny thing about destiny destiny doesn't care about your answer destiny's yeah. gonna make it happen and lo and behold it happened. Yes. There's, there's always a refusal of fate, and fate will find a way to make it happen anyway. Yeah, that's that's the yin and the yang of the human mind. That we are equal, negative and positive. And and you know, when I sadly higher than fifty percent of the people veer to the negative. Um, that's why every movie maker that's ever made now, any movie that comes out, there's a whole voice of, on the internet of negatives um, which is which is given voice to it and it's okay that's a democracy but the problem is people listen to it because they want to be attracted to the negative um, that's all part of that story and I mean, George George has said specifically to me many times I make my movies for nine-year-old children and he says it's not my fault that adults like them as well. But he purposely centered it, nine to 12-year-olds, because that's the age where you're very receptive and where you need this kind of reinforcement to where you're going because it, it's tough at that age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, agreed. You, you mentioned the negative. George talks about that in Star Wars too. That's the dark side. Yeah. The dark more alluring. It's easier. Yeah. Which is why people do it. Because it's easy. Yes. Yeah. It's harder to look for the good when everything is so bogged down. Yeah. But at the same time, you mentioned he makes movies for kids, and if adults like it, that's great. All adults have a kid in their heart. They were children at one point, and I think it's just connecting to those movies, letting the kid be a kid on the inside for a little bit. Yeah, I absolutely. Don't Star give me any crap the next time I buy a Funko gun. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Yeah, the kid likes them, but the adult needs to make financial decisions. Yeah. The, the adult bought them financially at a okay rate. So, you know. okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the one of the other things I, I, I liked about the documentary, Roger, is that it really highlighted your ability to make props and scenes and settings look real, even if it was in a, a sci-fi backdrop. Uh, I, clearly, you did that on Star Wars. You did that on Alien. And looking back on it, you definitely did that with Life of Brian. But for you as a set designer and artist uh, and as a filmmaker, what why does reality play such a major role in the world of make-believe? Well, I, I never, you know, this was the first conversation. George came down to Mexico to see us. We were, we John Barry and I were making Lucky Lady. 
and we were converting old Mexican buildings into sets for rum running, and we we're making them look very real. Um, and he, he, his first conversation with me, I was dressing a salt factory, and um, he was while we were talking. They're like we, we were all like students. You have to remember then. They, um, and he was alone with Garth, Gary Kurtz, and um, he, he picked up a shovel and he was shoveling salt with me as we were talking. And I said to him, I, when he said he was making a science fiction movie, and I, I was very clear. I said, you know, I've never related to science fiction movies, but I'm an avid science fiction reader. And, you know, Dune is, stands out in my youth as a giant book. And it's real. You real politics, the look, everything. Um, and I think, to me, I, I analysed it. I never related to any science fiction movie because they looked completely artificial. They all had terrible sets that people thought they had to show because, oh, it was designed, and they had guns that were plastic and went pip-pip and they didn't look real. Um, and the characters, for some reason, half of them were dressed in Indian Nero collared suits. For some reason, they thought, oh, that's what everyone will wear in the future. So, I, you know, that was my, I said to him, I just don't connect to that. Um, and I said, you know, for me, it, it would be like somebody has a car in a garage and it's old and you keep repairing, it's dripping oil and everything. Well, Little did I know, but when I got the script, when we finally started, I was I had described the Millennium Falcon absolutely perfectly <laughs> to George. So I understood his instinct was, yeah, this guy gets it. Um, you know, and the, and the sci-fi movies, I, there's a movie called Alphaville that I really liked, and Jean-Luc Godard, because I, I spent my whole youth in cinemas in London watching especially um, Russian and, and French and Italian, you know, movies. Um, Alphaville, Jean-Luc Godard shot in the streets of Paris with a little um, um, camera and made it look like a science fiction movie. Um, and lo and behold, later on, John, uh, they told me, um, John Rinsler said, you know, the only poster he's got actually up in the ranch there is the poster of Alphaville. So I realized there was a connection to that. And Solaris, which I know um, the, the great Tarkovsky made, it has a lot of angst kind of stuff that sometimes we fast forward through, but he set it on a space station that was dripping water and collapsing and... and um, and I, I looked, I went inside a submarine and looked, and it's just jam-packed with stuff. You just wonder how they can work, and also bombers. And I, I wanted to bring that kind of sensibility so that an audience, when they're looking at it, they're never questioning, this is artificial, this is real. And we went off and shot in a real world, and that was the reason why we used Tunisia hardly changing it you know it's mostly down to me dressing um bits of old aircraft stuff and um, different things to make it look and it changed cinema there's no question that i think mm -hmm. that was a part of the reason the audience accepted a sci-fi movie which they'd never done before there was no box office for a, a, a movie and that's that's why fox would only give george like originally four million dollars to make this epic with because they estimated it would make $12 million, the, Scott, the, the 20th Century Fox board, because there was no history of success in science fiction. Well, they yeah. made a very bad deal on that end, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, George was smarter than them, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. It'll I never mean, happen again. Just, just the fact that those movies literally completely changed cinema from then on... I, until you mentioning this in the documentary that you made, I didn't realize Guillermo del Toro got inspired to make movies from Star Wars. Well, it's much more than that. Um, um, James Cameron, and I, I, I couldn't get to him, and um, I couldn't get the clip. He, he says on one of his interviews, he said, I, the day I saw Star Wars, I decided that's what I had to do is become a filmmaker. 
I met Christopher Nolan. He was here um, at the showing in IMAX of Dunkirk, and I met him afterwards. And because he 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 was quickly talked to me, and he said, "I don't understand. You did it all." He said, "Nowadays they split up. It some does vehicles, one does guns, one does this." He said, "You did everything in your day." And I said, "Yeah, we did." And I said, "Do you remember when you first saw first saw Star Wars? I was eleven years old. My father took me, named the cinema, the time, everything." It inspired him to become a filmmaker. If you look at interviews of James Gunn, I when I saw Star Wars, it inspired me to become a filmmaker. Um, and it's all I hear with everybody. Carl Newman, the um, yeah, uh, uh, Gareth Edwards, all most major filmmakers saw it and decided that's what they wanted to do. That's incredible kind of history, and it's you know oh, yeah. it's why I support George against all these negatives against him because he gave the world something that uh, we needed. I mean, just imagining the world without Star Wars is impossible. No, thank you. I mean, just what it did for just being Star Wars is one thing, but all the people that were inspired to write or film or anything none of those movies would exist. No. no. It makes me very curious but scared of what the world would be like if Star Wars never happened. Yeah. That's no, true. It would be like that movie yesterday where the guy wakes up and the Beatles didn't exist. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's like the closest thing I can, I can compare it to because, you know, true. he wakes up and the Beatles are gone. Nobody understands, you know, the, the, the impact, whether you liked them or not. The, the Beatles had a, ma- a major, major impact on the, mu- yes. the music scene moving forward. How yeah. many artists would not be here today True. because they didn't have the in- the influence of the Beatles? You know, it's the same thing with, with Star Wars and George Lucas. Yeah. How many filmmakers would we have lost out on had George yeah. Lucas not been able to make A New Hope in 1977? True. I mean, the whole plot of It's a Wonderful Life just yeah. right there. Yeah. So Pretty much. Great. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you have won so many awards uh, over the years for dozens of critically acclaimed movies. Um, but I recently learned that you won a different kind of award for one of your other movies. You also directed Battlefield Earth, which was not as widely received as some of your other works. How do you balance out the highs and the lows to the the reception to your work? Once again, talking about the positives and the negatives. Well, that was um, that was a you know John Travolta's had seen the trailer for um, uh, it was the first trailer actually that came out for um, Phantom Menace, and by chance I think half the trailer were shots I'd done, and. He'd phoned George and said, look, I haven't got any money to make this movie with. Um, And he'd seen Nostradamus, my movie that I made, which he absolutely loved. Um, Mm -hmm. And when he met me, he said, yeah, I can see. Oh, yeah, you're not afraid of major actors, all this stuff and and the way you did it. So he kind of said, you've got to do it. I'm sorry. Um, And I, I was aware that there would be some backlash, but what I w- what we were not aware of was the anti Scientology um, figures throughout the world who are rampant and who spend fortunes decrying anything about the church. Now I'm I'm not a member of the church. I, I went into it with George with uh, John because I wanted to know because I knew I'd be under fire. But the movie has nothing to do with Scientology at right. all. And right. in fact, at the opening. If you look at the book, which is a fantastic book, it's he says, Ron Hubbard, I know that members of my serious work will be disappointed by this, but I just wanted to write a rip-roaring science fiction movie. And Ron Hubbard was the biggest-selling Pulp Fiction author, I think, ever. He wrote 49 mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction books. And I looked at this and thought, this is Pulp Science Fiction. It's cool you know so we tried to make a similar kind of 
it, as if it was a kind of pulp fiction graphic novel put up on the screen, and that's what it was intended to be. And it was we were slaughtered because of Scientology, and it's nothing to do with it. Um, and it, it's over the years, I got so many messages privately saying, we finally saw the movie, and it's really interesting. And even recently, a journalist told me that he emailed Roger Ebert and asked if he would reevaluate Battlefield Earth. And this was before he died, Roger Ebert. And he wrote him back and said, I did. This is actually a very interesting movie. So all I can say is I think we were way ahead of our time. We were many of the negatives about it were people who actually never saw it. They just went along. You know, the LA Times actually printed this is the LA Times senior writer that if you dared to go to the cinema, I'd buried subliminal messages and you'd come out a Scientologist. Jesus. You know? And it kind of makes me laugh. So um, I just feel sad because we, we, we did a lot of work and the crew pulled it off. We went to Montreal mm -hmm. and I did what we did on the first hours. We formed our own ILM in an old military base and did everything for real. Um, John Travolta himself was on Barbara Walters and he'd never been before. He'd never gone on there. And she asked him what he was most proud of in his career. And he said, Battlefield Earth. So, you know, you can, t and it's a hugely profitable movie which again is decried by the negatives saying, oh, it was the biggest loss. It wasn't. It made a lot of money for the original financier and John Travolta. But these things I can say time and time again, and no one wants to accept it because, again, this negative voice comes inside. So, you know, we, we pulled it off, and um, it certainly dented my career in Hollywood horribly um, because, mm. again... The the lemming talk goes on, and everybody sure. goes on the same path. So, you know, I talked to George about it, and as he said, I don't review, read reviews. I don't look at anything because when it goes wrong, you just if you did, you'd feel bad about it, and if you if everyone loves it, you fluff your ego. So it's better not to look at anything. You just get on with your work, and that's how I look at it. Perfect. Um, Quentin Tarantino, it's one of his favorite movies. And he came to the premiere and sat between John and I and afterwards said, listen, this is the movie that kind of what I'd really like to write. He said, but hug, give me a hug, both of you, because love it, because it's going to take 20 or 30 years and it'll start to be accepted. So I, mean, I can see that, you know, you know it's yeah. one of those things. And I read somewhere too that there was a sequel planned for it. Did, now, is is that true or did that not? No, that a... was true because we only filmed the first half of the book. If if I could go back in time, and which I don't do, but if I could, I would have made the second part first, like George did, because the second part of the book is incredible action and um, thrilling stuff in it. Um, the it. it played on HBO and it played for six months. It was only due for three months. It played that long. They offered to do, they put up a lot of the money towards the sequel. Um, but it just, the distributors were all like, well, no, we can't do this. And, I, and I, I think it was too much for everybody to go back into war again with John. And it would have been the cast, the original cast. Sure. I mean, so when I found out that we finally booked you for an interview, I was super excited, and I've never seen Battlefield Earth before. So I watched it. I thought it was okay. I thought it was pretty good. But then seeing all the negative reviews, I'm like, what movie did these people watch? They didn't. Like, what, are, what are they doing? Yeah, I know. I, it's it's. We were very innovative for the time. I mean, George, literally, John Travolta and I flew to the ranch and showed it on Skywalker to the whole of the ILM crew and George and everybody. And George got me after. He said, I don't understand. I said, what? He said, how did you make this movie for the money that you, you had? I don't understand. How did you do these effects for the small budget you had? And 
I just said, George, I don't own ILM. That's all I can tell you. I use different houses all over the place and somehow very convincingly got it done. In fact, we we helped to launch um, Hybrid in, in Montreal. They did 180 shots for us. They were unknown before that. I, you probably don't know this, but Steven Spielberg called John Travolta and said, where did you do the ships for Battlefield Earth? Because I really liked them, and I, that's what he wanted for Minority Report, and they used hybrid. Those ships in, in uh, Minority Report are my ships. They just closed them with a different look. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I was wondering why they looked fairly similar. I just didn't yeah. know if that was just coincidence or not, but that makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking about it. But yeah. I, I have a feeling it's... I mean, I don't know how many people are watching Battlefield Earth now, but I mean, just thinking about when the when the prequels came out for Star Wars, people ripped on them to no end. They got an unnecessary amount of hate, and now they're beloved material. Yes. So. Who yeah, knows? You know, who knows? I just got to get on now and keep making movies and not. Oh, absolutely! Not, and you've done not, fantastic everything the entirety of your career for the most part well i tell you what well since we're talking about the getting on and and, and moving on to other things let's talk about one of the other things there, there was my segue see that i did a segue yes <laughs> Woo. all right so um because the more I, I i learned about you the more amazed i was by some of the things that you worked on in your past and i started looking about uh you know into the future to see what were some of the other things that you'd be working on um and what you'd have coming up. So I mentioned this next part with a grain of salt because we call IMDB the Wikipedia of the entertainment industry, and about 50% of the time, it's wrong every time. So um, according to IMDB, there's an interesting-looking program coming up on your resume called Replicants of Atlantia. Right. And I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about something about that, if that's something you can talk about, and uh, if it's you know, so we can figure out how to look forward to this. Yeah, that was, um, I was asked by the financier who financed the documentary, Galaxy Built on Hope, if um, I had an idea because she wanted to, they were a new studio and they wanted a an Indian film and, and my documentary and a few other areas. And she had an animating film that I was helping them on that was going to be made in India from an Indian legend. And the, that fell away, the funding. She said, do we have anything to replace it with? And I said, I do. I, I, I saw Elon Musk say that he was determined to conquer Mars, but he realized to do it, he'd have to sacrifice a lot of people. And I thought, no, you, by then you'll just have robots to do this. So um, I conceived dealing with climate change when the Earth is running out, how a, a future multi-zillionaire who controls the world's power through power cells that he's found a new way to do, finances a search for a new planet, and they found one. And so they take nine people who could do the job, and they replicate them as robots, and they transfer their brains into the robots, and they're sent. And so... It's fun because they're building this under pressure to house a community coming from Earth to help to save the humankind. Um, And it was very interesting because when I was writing it, I wrote with a young sci-fi writer here that these are replicants who have who are experiencing flashbacks and memories that they'd never actually experienced. And so they're finding things out like love. And and then eventually they start to realize, listen, why are we building toilets? Why are we building showers? Why are we building farms to grow food? We don't need any of that. And also they have power that, that their power source now will be infinite. So they're realizing if humans are going to survive, it's them, <laughs> which is kind of coming to the forefront now 
with AI, with everything going on, that um, it's it's a kind of prophecy, really. So it's halfway through. They're doing that in India with a fantastic company in India animating the whole thing for us. Um, and we, as they go, they find more financing. So we're in the middle of it now, and then she's raising more finance to carry on. That's, I hope, will get done because what we've done is so exciting, the vision of it. It sounds sounds, really interesting. Yeah, I'm excited for the show. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Uh, I like the premise of it, uh, especially because it feels like something that we're going to have to deal with in the next few years. (laughs) It's coming faster than I ever thought. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, you know, it's like I just did a, a, I just did a, a, huge conference they flew me to hong kong on ai and web3 and i had to give part of a panel and i was with some really interesting people and i i went there thinking you know ai it was partly then because a strike was on and the writers were on strike and part of it was against ai and i i kind of said you know it's probably four percent of the companies in Hollywood who actually take a, a AI generated script, like, you know, the, they make these cheap movies that go out all the time. That probably could happen and they'll say, let's do it. But most times it's creative. And I said, let's look at this with Star Wars, the first one with George Lucas. So to create a premise, he took Forbidden Fortress with Kurosawa's drama and there was the structure of the movie and he took a spaghetti western and he put it into it and he took the ideas like merlin and put those into it and i said this is exactly what and everyone at the point said oh this is gonna ruin the industry and as vhs came out oh the film industry is dead and then blu-rays came out oh the film industry is dead and then streaming came out the film industry is dead the creative part of us as humans will never fail. And if if I can go on now and if I input correctly the idea I want for a story, I'll get a script within a few hours, which I can then work on. Whereas before, with all of the research I had to do, it would take nine months to get to that point. So you just have to learn to adapt and to use it. That's sorry, it's a long story, but it would kind of answer the question in a roundabout way. No, we like long answers. Long answers are good answers. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. The the longer you talk, the more we have, which is fantastic for us. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> All right. But uh, so you've been on the set and around so many high profile movies over the years, varying roles and positions, job titles and everything from all the Star Wars ones that you've worked on, Alien, Nostradamus, and other ones. What is your absolute favorite prop that you've made or have had made or just really liked how it looked? It would have to be the lightsaber. Um, Not just because it's the iconic view of um, Star Wars, but I, I think because it just feels so right and you know my i have a 10 year old here the room is full of lightsabers he's always having battles and uh this is true to so many kids in the world and again it's a lightsaber that's what it was first called um it's a saber of light it's 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 visually showing you that the light is the important thing um i do like han solo's pistol (laughs) i think that one was particularly particularly good and i also like um the gaddafi stick that um is part of the tuscan raiders and and then has now been so well kind of brought to the forefront in um with boba in boba fett and how its history came about and stuff so those i think would probably be the, the the major ones all right. Very cool. Is there a particular lightsaber that you've made that you just, that's the one? Luke's original. Just Luke's original? I, yeah, I because mean, the, it the, is beautiful. 
the set deck on on you know we were busy i was i was making black angel and um when empire strikes back and the set decorator they hired who i knew very well was not particularly science fiction oriented and i i think to make their life easier they put rivets in the t-strip that completely ruined it to me that makes a human element in in a mystical object and unfortunately that carried right the way through all through and then i was watching with trepidation dave filoni's series no no when when uh no um uh obi-wan kenobi okay Mm -hmm. and he goes to dig it up in the desert right at the end and i thought oh god what's he gonna dig up what's he gonna dig up and i'm watching very carefully and he dug up my original without the rivets and and i praise and i god bless and thank you and anyone who can let him know dave filoni has brought back george's vision and brought back everything that is sacred to every fan about star wars so i take my hat off to him agreed oh yeah most people agree with you there yeah you'll get no argument from me on that i'm i'm very excited to see where where dave is going next with, with yes. star wars because he he has such a a a a, a keen nose for where the story needs to go but his feet are so solidly planted in the lore yeah and and he was able to marry those two things together so nicely and it's uh yeah it it's, gives fans it, like me hope well it does and i here's another you know interesting thing about that and this is to me is george's talent see he george and i got chosen john barry um the ilm boys nobody actually had much experience we had enough to do the job and um we weren't uh conditioned by too much experience to say no gov you know we can't this is how we always do it it'll how it work each one of us said we can't do this we got to find a way to do it and that's george's instinct and it went all the way through you know look at um um ben burt he was a student when he Mm -hmm. got chosen to do the sound um and if you look at the story of dave filoni who was working in animation in disney and he got called and he went knowing he would never get this job he saw he was up against and he thought if i go and i'm going to sit with george at a table and i can dine on this for the rest of my life and george's instinct chose him probably the least experienced because he saw something in Dave and, and he trained him and he understood. I think this is part of George's legacy that's never really kind of talked about, but it's even the posters. George took people who normally wouldn't be taken to do the posters. He chose by instinct. And I think that's Perfect very much yeah, part of who he is. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, in my mind, George Lucas is basically Yoda. And then you have Dave Filoni is the Luke Skywalker of the whole right. thing. And I just, <laughs> true. he's the new there. hope, and I yes. love it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He is the new hope. <laughs> All right, Roger. Uh, so we were at the end of our normal slate of questions for our guests, but we do like to end okay. our interviews on what we call our silly question. Uh, right. Just to see what you have to say on this topic. So last year we asked people uh, what their favorite dinosaur is, but it's 2024 and we thought we should ask a new question. And that question is, what's something that you bought that you instantly regretted? A used Pontiac um, Firebird. I, I had an I had a Mustang in England that I loved and hardly anyone had one. It was left hand drive and, and I just loved the design of it. This is actually when we made Star Wars. I was driving around in it listening to the doors all the time. Um and I thought, you know what, this firebird looks pretty cool. And this blooming thing broke down all the time. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was the opposite of the Mustang. Um and I got rid of it fairly quickly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that would probably be a, a big regret, but oh my god, that's funny. 
That'll start the new year off with it. There you go. All <laughs> right. So, Roger, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, where can our listeners go and find more about you and more about your work? Um, there's, uh, I do have a website, which I'm trying to get upgraded. It's Roger, uh, rogerchristian.com or rogerjchristian.com. That website is up. It's got stuff on there. Uh, we're trying to keep that up updated. I am on um, on Instagram under my name and Facebook still, and um, less on X, hmm. which I, I still don't understand why I have to change the name. <laughs> well, but, um, I still call it Twitter. Still Twitter to me. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's if Twitter. you look at the if you look at the website link, it says Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it does. So there, you can find me there. IMDb is, as you said, it's 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 often way behind, but there is stuff on there. But I, I guess the website would be the best. It's got the most information now, and I'll keep trying to update it because uh, I'm we will we'll be within a month. I'll be in Morocco preparing for um, the it's it's the Black Angel that is on. YouTube, the original short film that George commissioned, was a big influence on Game of Thrones. And it was shot, the pilot was shot in the same place in Scotland. Afterwards, Ireland turned up and um, said, we'll give you studios and we've got a lot of tax incentives. So Scotland lost it. So when I look now, if I made it in that same medieval, ancient kind of colder world, it would just look like I'm copying Game of Thrones. So I've I've gone back to the days of of Star Wars, whereby I've set it into a, into a spaghetti western like medieval, ancient kind of world, um, which is where it would have started originally. And it's part one, part two, and part three will come if we can get it financed. Um, the next segments of it and the first one's called sword of tyrus that's part of the black angel saga it's an interesting I, that'll be pr probably more i've got toby kebble who you may know toby was um co-lead in prince of persia co-lead in ben-hur um he's i think the best um black mirror the series i think his is the best one he was incredible in it he's done a huge amount of um of, of amazing work toby he's a, he was first seen in rock and roller he stole the whole show okay um and checky cario who's my nostradamus he's playing my version of merlin who's a, an ancient psychic uh, sorcerer and john reese davis who you will know Oh, yeah. who's also in the movie as well. So I've got a very good ensemble cast. Sounds great. We'll, yeah. we'll be starting pretty soon. Again, very low budget because we're independent. Um, I'm trying to keep that kind of philosophy of mine going whereby everything is real and keep it kind of um, not, you know, the American studios make the best. I, I just every time we go and see huge movies and they satisfy you and you, you know, you get your money's worth, everything. But they don't connect like Star Wars did, nor Alien. When you look at Alien, it's timeless. And um, so I'm trying to keep that independent spirit going. So it'll be a struggle, but that's what I'm used to. Well, I'm, okay. I'm super excited to see everything that you got coming up soon. Uh, and we'll make sure to put all the links in the description Fantastic. below. Thank you. Yeah, and, and send me a link to this because I'll, I'll get it out as well. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'll tell everybody. Absolutely. So, hey, guys, want to remind you that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to help ensure that we get more amazing guests like Roger Christian here and have uh, great moments for you to be able to listen to and to be able to learn about things like, well, you know, Star Wars because, you know, Star Wars. But anyway, please subscribe. Uh, it helps more than you'll ever be able to know. And be sure to go check out Roger's work uh, on the links down below. Uh, he's got so many cool things that we, we didn't even scratch the surface of. 
Uh, this could be like a running series of yes. week by week, just talking about an individual movie. That's how many things he's got out there that are so very cool. So go check out Roger's work. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Uh, so yeah, thank you, Roger, for coming on the thank FSF you. podcast. And thanks, guys, for tuning in. That's going to do it for us this week on the FSF podcast. Goodbye. Bye. Copyright 2024 FSF Podcast. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by FSF Podcast. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at info at fsfpopcast.com.